Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, so at this point, um, you've already learned more than most Catholics know about deification. So what I'd like to do um, now is to reflect together in a little bit more depth about the ordinary way that God has provided for us to get deified. Um, That is through the sacraments um, in the church's liturgy. So the liturgy is really the privileged way in which God fulfills the the great and precious promises he makes us um, to make us share in the divine nature. So first, I want to say a little bit about what liturgy is. I'm sure you've heard this word um, around the Thomistic Institute before. Um, In a basic way, it means the church's public worship. So all the, the stuff we do in church as the body of Christ Um, the celebration of sacraments like the Eucharist and baptism, and also the liturgy of the hours, the divine office. Um, And because Christ is the head of his body, the church, every liturgy is celebrated by Christ the head and all his members. That is, all all the baptized. So it's really Christ, you could say, who is the main celebrant. He is the great high priest um, at every liturgy. He's the one working in and through the ministers, through the priests, and through the people. So it's really Christ who is glorifying the Father um, throughout all time and, and singing a hymn of praise to him with all the angels and saints in heaven. So uh, your first quote on the back of the handout there is from Sacrosanctum Concilium. That's the document on the liturgy from Vatican II. Um, I think it's a very beautiful quote to think about um, at Mass, for instance. Christ Jesus, high priest of the new and eternal covenant, taking human nature, introduced into this earthly exile that hymn which is sung throughout all ages in the halls of heaven. He joins the entire community of mankind to himself, associating it with his own singing of this canticle of divine praise. So Christ is always standing before the Father singing this uh, hymn of love um, and and glorifying him. And uh, at every liturgy, the whole church is present. Every time you go to Mass, um, all the angels and saints are there as well. Christ is there, all the angels and saints with us uh, invisibly, um, celebrating the liturgy. So it's at the liturgy, it's not just that we are remembering Christ and his self-offering to the Father, and we are, of course, but we're actually being drawn up into something even bigger. Um, We're joining in something that's already happening. In all reality, John Chrysostom says, father of the church um, from the fourth century, we're standing side by side with the angels and saints around the throne of God and the Lamb. So we're getting a kind of foretaste of heaven in the liturgy, especially in the Eucharist, because Christ is as we know, substantially present there in his body, blood, soul, and divinity. The whole reality of Christ is there. So I'm going to come back to say a little bit more about that later. 
So Sacrosanctum Concilium, this document on the liturgy from Vatican II, says, this is in uh, number two, in the liturgy, the work of our redemption is accomplished. It goes on to say there that the liturgy is the greatest work of the church in which God is glorified and we are sanctified or made holy. So, of course, Christ redeemed us on the cross, right, through his, his passion, uh, death, and resurrection. Um, but liturgy continues that work through time, right, so that all of us can have uh, sort of step into it um, and be a part of it. So in the liturgy, the members of Christ's body are made holy by divine worship, and God is glorified perfectly in them. So here's the point I want to make. Our sanctification and God's glorification are related to each other through the liturgy. We, we can understand this more deeply, I think, now that we know that sanctification is deification. So our holiness means that our sharing in God's divine life, right? And in the liturgy, because we're redeemed and made holy by sharing in God's life through the gift of grace, that means that God's goodness is shining forth in us by the very fact that we're, we're being deified like that. God is being praised and glorified in Christ um, and in his body. So our deification in the liturgy gives glory to God because it reveals his great goodness to us. It reveals his gift to us. And so as I said last time, um, it makes us share in the beauty of divine holiness. It makes us share in divine beauty. So I want us to think about the liturgy um, not just as all the stuff we do in church, but on this deeper level. The sacred liturgy, and especially the sacraments, are the privileged means of our deification, which gives glory to God. So this idea, it's actually reflected in the words and the actions of the liturgy itself. Um, I said last time that scripture and theology aren't the only sources of Christian teaching on deification. Um, Actually, the liturgy is an even more primary source of teaching on deification. There's an, an ancient saying in the church, lex orandi, lex credendi. That means the law of prayer is the law of faith. We can learn about the faith just by attending the liturgy. Right? It embodies um, the teachings of the faith. And in some, in some ways, the teachings of the faith grew out of the church's uh, liturgy itself. Um, so... I mentioned that deification summed up in that idea of the wonderful exchange, that God became man so that man could become God. And this teaching is in the words of the liturgy as well, especially, not surprisingly, around the Feast of the Incarnation, which is Christmas, right? Um, so if you were really paying attention at Mass last Christmas, you might have noticed the words of the third preface. I hope you were paying attention. You'll, you can tell me what they were, right? Okay, I'll tell you. Okay, for through him, the holy exchange that restores our life has shone forth today in splendor. When our frailty is assumed by your word, not only does human mortality receive unending honor, but by this wondrous union, we too are made eternal. Right? So the idea of that marvelous exchange is right there in the liturgy. And we hear about it again on the preface for Epiphany. For today you have revealed the mystery of our salvation in Christ as a light for the nations. And when he appeared in our mortal nature, 
you made us new by the glory of his immortal nature. Now, maybe you missed these prayers at the time. Next time you'll pay attention though, right? But the priest or the deacon actually refers to the wonderful exchange at every mass. Um, when he mixes the water and wine at the offertory, and sometimes they'll say this aloud, but usually it's prayed quietly. But uh, what he, he prays is this, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. It's a beautiful prayer. So it makes sense that the liturgy teaches us about deification because it's primarily through the grace given by the sacraments, right, that we're deified. So I want to say a little bit, um, I know that you know what sacraments are, but I want to say a little bit about why it's especially through them that we are deified. Um, so the key here, and I'm going to draw especially from Thomas Aquinas again, is that the sacraments are what uh, Thomas calls instruments of Christ's humanity. So what does he mean by that? Well, he means that they're extensions into our own time and space of Christ's action and all of its effects. And they contain all of Christ's saving power to give us grace. So as Aquinas puts it, the sacraments unite or apply all the power of Christ's passion to us. They apply all the power of Christ's passion to us. So Christ communicates his gift of grace to us through them. So in the sacraments, Christ touches our souls through our senses, pouring his grace into us that, that heals us right from sin and makes us holy. And we know what that grace does, right? It gives us a share in the divine nature, and it fills our souls with the presence of the Holy Trinity. Um, making us into the dwelling place of God. So all, all the sacraments cause grace in, uh, in different ways and are the special or primary way that God has given us in Christ to receive that gift. They continue the work of the incarnation and especially of his saving passion, death, and resurrection in the world so that people in every time and place can be touched by him and be filled with God's presence. So when you receive a sacrament, and especially the Eucharist, in which Christ is really present, you're actually joined to Christ himself in some way. So the sacraments make you a, a part of Christ, a part of his body, and in some way they bring you a share in the saving mysteries of his passion, death, and resurrection. And what I mean by that is that because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are conformed to him, conformed. You're shaped like him. You're made like him so much that it's just as if he does everything he did for all human salvation in you. And that's all possible because of this wonderful exchange of the incarnation. So the, the idea here is that if we're one with Christ, God causes his, his div divine effects in us by allowing us to, through the sacraments to share in the, the power of the mysteries that Christ himself um, experienced. So uh, let me say a little bit more about that. that and I'm going to use the example of baptism because it's most fundamentally true in baptism. And that's why it's the first sacrament and it's the most necessary one 
um, for salvation. So in baptism, Aquinas teaches, the Holy Spirit sacramentally likens us to Christ in his passion. We become like Christ in his passion. Baptism, Aquinas says, makes us one with the crucified Christ so powerfully that in effect, his passion is taking place in us with all of its saving effects. We're likened to Christ um, in his passion um, and death by uh, dying to sin ourselves in our own baptism. And just as his passion is fulfilled in his resurrection, so Christ's resurrection then is the cause of our resurrection to new life now, a new spiritual life now, and to eternal life in heaven. So it's like Christ is dying and rising in us, and we're with him, in him, dying and rising um, in our baptism. So our baptism is really the, the very beginning of our own eternal resurrection in uh, body and soul that will be fulfilled, God willing, um, in glory. So Aquinas explains that Christ calls himself the resurrection and the life uh, in the Gospel of John because, Aquinas says, he is life itself. And here's what Aquinas says. One can only be restored to life by life. Just as something that has been extinguished can only be set on fire again by fire. So the Apostle Paul says, um, not he doesn't just say that we're going to be raised. He says we're going to be raised up with Christ. So he says that in uh, Ephesians 2.5. We're going to be raised up with Christ in a resurrection like his. That's Romans uh, 6, 5. So to be raised up in glory in the next life, you have to be made one with Christ in this life by grace so that all the power of his passion, death, and resurrection, what the church calls the Paschal mystery, right, can be applied not just to the human race in general, but to you in particular. So uh, at the center of all liturgy, kind of like a door that opens communication between heaven and earth, is Christ crucified and risen. Christ on the cross is like an open gate into heaven, and we enter into the depth of the mystery of God through him. So everything he did and suffered was so that we could be justified and deified um, through him, as Father Andrew just said. Um, and because all the sacraments derive their power from the passion of Christ, and Christ's passion is the perfect sacrifice of God made human, Sacraments have a power so great that they can overcome any sin and overcome even death. So the cross is sometimes portrayed in Christian art as the tree of life, with the sacraments and the whole church flowing out from it to give life to the whole world. Okay, so now we uh, look at the picture. So there's a great example of this um, on your handout, I think. I know at least one of you has been here before, but this is the mosaic in the apse of uh, the Basilica of San Clemente in Rome. Has anybody, has anybody ever been there? I know, I know you have. Anybody else? It's number one on your list if you go to Rome. You have to go. It's a Dominican uh, church. It, the Dominican friars are there. Um, it's an, an ancient basilica actually built over a pagan temple. There's a real interesting history um, to this. But what we have now, what we're looking at now, is a 12th century mosaic um, in the apse, which is 
kind of like a big round dome part um, in the church, in the sanctuary that's right over um, where the altar is. So when you look up, when you go to the Church of San Clemente and you look up where you go up to receive communion, um, you see this visual connection between this mosaic in the apse and what's happening down on the altar below, right? There's like a connection between the altar where the, the sacrifice is being celebrated and then um, this apse, it's, uh, this mosaic in the apse. So the mosaic is full of gold. You can see in the picture here. Um, and this, in a medieval church, this would really have sparkled, like in, in a, a church that was just lit by candles. It would be a really sparkling, kind of beautiful, attractive thing to see. Okay, so on your handout, um, there's two sections to the picture. The top section is um, uh, really just a central part of, uh, of the mosaic. And it portrays Christ as the tree of life, Christ on the cross as the tree of life. So you can see there's the cross, and um, on the cross is Christ. And there's those 12 doves, which um, are, are supposed to represent the 12 apostles. Um, that uh, Christ sent out to preach. And then you can see that sprouting sort of from the base of the cross is this vine that's twirling out over, over the entire apse. There's branches sprouting out. And that kind of covering of the whole apse, it symbolizes that the, this effect, this life-giving effect of the cross uh, spreads out over the entire world. And you can see that um, in the branches of uh, the vines there, and you just see a few examples here, but in the larger mosaic, we see all kinds of different people. So like on the, the left of the cross there, you see kind of a little family of people dressed in medieval garb, um, just ordinary folk. Over to the right, you can see there's a, a monk there um, with his book. Um, you can see all sorts of flowers and birds and fruit that symbolize their kind of symbols of paradise, uh, the richness of paradise. Um, I wish I could have included a little picture on here. My favorite, one of my favorite things in the mosaic is there's a tiny little lady on the bottom left who's feeding her chickens. <laughs> and uh, so I told some of you, we have a little farm. I live on a little farm and we've got like tons of chickens, ducks and cute little baby goats and everything like that. So I really relate to this lady. So she's just down there feeding her chickens, you know, but she's receiving life from the tree of life, um, which is the cross, right? She's part of the body. Um, and so there's all, all kinds of stuff going on um, in the branches of this vine. It, it's all of life, really. Um, so uh, an interesting thing about this mosaic is that there are a lot of references to scripture. So this is a great example of how, the, how sacred heart can be kind of like a visual theology. So embedded in this picture, there's lots of um, scriptural references. And maybe the most obvious one is John 15, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. And uh, in order to have life, you must remain in me. Cut off from me, you can do nothing, right? John 15. Um, so, uh, we can see standing next to the cross there um, are Our Lady, Mary, and um, John the Evangelist on either side. Um, and you can't see it too well, but in this, in this uh, reproduction, but spurting from Christ's side, there's a 
a little stream of blood, drops of blood are coming out from Christ's side. And this is a reference to the scene in the Gospel of John 19, chapter 19, where, remember, a soldier, when Christ is hanging on the cross, right, pierces Christ's side with a spear, right? And blood and water comes out from Christ's side. And the tradition understands this as referring symbolically to the sacraments of Eucharist, blood, right, and baptism, water. So the sacraments are coming out of Christ's side, you might say, as he is on the cross. So Augustine takes this even further, and he connects this text in John to the birth of the church. So the sacraments coming out of Christ's side are like the church being born out of Christ's side. And, and here's what Augustine says. I think it's very beautiful. He compares Christ on the cross to Adam in the Garden of Eden. So remember, God fashioned Eve, right, from Adam's side. God took Eve from Adam's side while he slept. And the word in, uh, in the, the book of Genesis, the word for Adam's sleep, it really means a kind of rapture or almost like an ecstasy. And in that uh, dream, in that sleep, God takes um, Eve from his side. Augustine says that on the cross, the church was born from Christ as his bride in these sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. He says, Christ, the second Adam, bowed his head and fell asleep, that a spouse might be formed from, for him from what flowed from the sleeper's side. So Christ sleeping on the cross, God takes the church from his side in the sacraments of uh, baptism and Eucharist. Beautiful image. Now, this isn't the only scriptural connection to the Garden of Eden uh, in the Mosaic. Um, we, uh, on your handout there, the lower section of, of the handout, that part on the bottom, is a kind of magnified picture of what's at the foot of the cross. So you can see down there, um, there are these four streams of water flowing out, right, at, at the bottom. And um, you can see deer drinking from them. And there's a snake there as well. Okay, snake, we know we're in the Garden of Eden, right? So, so ancient uh, zoology had a kind of semi-mythological teaching that deer, if a deer ate a poisonous snake, it would uh, go and drink a lot of water in order to neutralize the vent. So just kind of primitive zoology, okay? But early Christians adapted that myth, and they took the deer to symbolize the newly baptized. So I don't know if you've ever heard Psalm 42. Um, it was traditionally sung at baptisms. Perhaps you uh, heard it in the liturgy. As the deer longs for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. So when early Christians were baptized, it was traditional to sing Psalm 42. The, the, early, you're like, the, the baptized are like deer coming to drink from the stream um, and uh, longing for God. So, of course, um, the snake here symbolizes sin, right? Sin and temptation. And so uh, sort of thinking in terms of that myth, um, the baptized who've been bitten by the snake 
which is sin and temptation, right, are being healed by drinking from the waters of baptism. So it's kind of kind of complicated, but when you when you uh, understand it, you see, oh, that makes a lot of sense, right? Those four streams of water, they're like the four streams that flowed out of the Garden of Eden um, in the book of Genesis. And so when you go and you drink the waters of baptism, it's like you're returning to Eden, right? You're returning to the state of innocence that Adam and Eve had before they fell, before they were bitten by the snake. You're being healed um, from its bite. And what's, where, where is that healing coming from? Well, it's coming from the rivers of grace that are flowing from the cross, right? So, so baptism flows from the cross like a river of grace, and, and you drink from that when you're being baptized. Well, that's not even there, the only reference to the Garden of Eden that's in here. Um, the focus of the whole mosaic, of course, is Christ's body hanging on the cross. And there's another very important reference here to the Garden of Eden. So let's think about this together. If the cross is the tree of life, okay, then what's the fruit that's hanging on this tree of life? What's hanging there? It's Christ's body, right? Christ's body is the fruit of this tree of life. Now remember, the, the fruit in the garden in the book of Genesis, the fruit that gave eternal life, Adam and Eve were cut off from that when they sinned. They weren't allowed to eat the fruit of the tree of life. So what is this, what is this telling us? It's saying that in the Eucharist, right, which is Christ's body, God is giving back to us the fruit of the tree of life. What Adam and Eve lost because of their sin, we get back when we eat Christ's body in the Eucharist. <clears throat> we once again are given the fruit of eternal life. Jesus himself says, right, unless you eat of me, you will not have life. This is the fruit of eternal life. So you might remember, and, and this goes, uh, follows right on from what Father Andrew was saying, Adam and Eve fell because they wanted to grab for themselves the gift of being like God. They had a false idea of, of deification, and, and then, ironically, what happened? They lost the chance to be like God and be close to God. And they suffered all the effects of sin, like death, um, in their body and soul. Well, in the sacraments, in baptism, and especially in the Eucharist, Christ restores that gift that Adam and Eve lost, the gift of deification and eternal life. And he does that by uniting us, body and soul, to himself um, through the sacraments. Okay, so for the rest of my talk, um, then, I want to focus on how the Eucharist helps us to grow in deification after baptism, and um, in fact, gives us the food we need to journey all the way um, to heaven. So uh, the Eucharist, um, you may have heard this before, is called the greatest of all the sacraments, right? The sacrament of sacraments. And that's because... It doesn't only contain the gift of grace, like all the sacraments do, but it also contains the giver of grace himself, right? In his real or substantial presence, under the appearances of bread and wine. And he's there in that same life-giving body that hung on the cross, that died, was resurrected, and is now in heaven. That's the body that you receive 
um, in the Eucharist. So the Eucharist, uh, Aquinas calls it, and I mentioned this yesterday, the sacrament of charity. And he draws that from the tradition. He didn't invent that idea. But he calls it that because charity, what does charity do? It unites us to God. And the Eucharist perfectly unites us, Aquinas says, to Christ who suffered for us out of love. The whole reason Christ suffered for us was because of his great love for us, right? So what we see in this sacrament of charity, sacrament means like a sign, right? It's a sign of Christ's charity, his love for us, and also our love for God, right? By eating this sacrament, um, we, in a sense, um, grow in love for God. We see God's love for us, and that makes us love God even more in return. Now, it's no secret. I think you probably know that Catholics' faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist has declined radically over the last 50 years or so. I mean, you know, maybe you've heard of those Pew studies on uh, religion and public life that um, I'm not even sure where, they, where it is now, but just in 2016 or something, it was the case that uh, at least 50% of American Catholics either didn't know or didn't believe that Christ was really present in the Eucharist. Somehow there's been a gap in formation where young people are not even being taught that anymore, um, it seems, in, in a lot of places. And that's really sad, because to receive Christ's gift of his own self in his body, blood, soul, and divinity into our body and soul is truly the closest we can come to God on earth. Now, to believe in the real presence does take faith, of course. It's not something we can understand just using our reason alone, although reason can help us to uh, understand what we know by faith. Um, I think it's good to know that the church has consistently believed for almost 2,000 years now, right, since Christ first instituted the Eucharist, that Christ himself really does become present in the Eucharist because he says so himself in the gospel, right? That reading we had from the Jerusalem Catechesis this morning, that was so perfect for this weekend, right? Why do we believe Christ is present? Because he said so. We believe it because he told us that. And truth himself does not lie as Aquinas says, right? We know it's true because Christ told us so himself. So as one early Christian theologian um, puts it, Christ said to us, take and eat my body. He didn't say take and eat the symbol of my body, right? He said take and eat my body. In the Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus is very realistic in his language about the Eucharist. Um, he says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. The words that he uses here refer are words that refer to the actual chewing of real food. They don't imply just a symbolic meaning, some kind of merely spiritual meaning. So early Christians really took these words literally. Um, St. Justin Martyr in the second century writes this. We do not receive these things as common bread or common drink. But as Jesus Christ, our Savior, became incarnate by God's word, taking flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer 
which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. Second century. Okay, well, that doesn't mean, as I said, that it's necessarily easy for us to completely understand how Christ can be really present, because it is miraculous, right? Sometimes I think we feel like we have to just really understand it all intellectually, and there's a way in which it's really beyond our capacity to do that. And, and that can perhaps make us feel like we failed somehow in our belief, but we haven't. I think in a certain way, sometimes you just have to say, as you know, St. Faustina said in the Divine Mercy, Jesus, I trust in you. If you said this is true, then I, I take, take it that it truly is true. So we don't actually have to completely understand it to know it's true by faith. But by the Middle Ages, the church did develop a way of trying to understand it. Um, and that is the doctrine of transubstantiation. and that. Uh, uh, that doctrine is meant to help our minds to see a little way into, um, into this mystery. So I'm not going to go into all the details of transubstantiation here, um, but uh, I just want to say that what it does is it tries to describe philosophically how in the Eucharist one substance, and here by substance I mean a reality, how one substance or reality is transformed into another reality or substance. That is, the reality of bread, which is there before the consecration, is changed into the reality of Christ, right? So um, the outward, it still looks like bread. The outward appearances of bread and wine stay the same. But the reality of what the thing is has changed from bread um, into Christ himself. So his whole reality is there. His body blood, his soul, divinity, is present in every consecrated host, even though it still um, looks and, and tastes like bread. I think sometimes, especially if we're lifelong Catholics, we can almost kind of take that for granted, you know, especially if we're kind of distracted or, or tired or something like that. I think it's important to keep on contemplating that. Because when you think about it, right, if Christ himself appeared visibly in this room right now, I don't know about you, but I'd probably be on the floor. Remember that icon of the transfiguration where the disciples are like on the ground in awe? I'm pretty sure we'd all be there, right? Well, that's what's happening um, at every Mass. That's, that's the reality of it. So St. John Chrysostom, um, I mentioned him before, he's a fourth century father of the church. He especially emphasizes the awe that we should feel in the presence of this mystery. So he compares the blood of Christ on the altar at Mass with a fiery stream flowing out of paradise. And I, I love this quote. Um, I think I put it, yeah, it's on your handout. He says, this fountain is a fountain of light, shedding abundant rays of truth. And beside it, the powers, the angels from on high, have taken their stand gazing on the beauty of its streams, since they perceive more clearly than we do the power of what lies before us and its unapproachable flashing rays. Just as if one were to put one's hand or tongue into molten gold, if that were possible, he would at once make the object golden, 
The mystery lying before us here affects the soul, but much more so. The stream gushes up more vigorously than fire. It does not burn, but only cleanses what it touches. It's like we become coated in gold, right? When we, we eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. So Chrysostom says, awe-inspiring in truth are the mysteries of the church. Awesome, indeed, her altar. He says, before the altar, we're standing side by side in adoration of Christ with the angels who always gaze upon the Father's face. I think it's important to know, however, that even though Christ always becomes present in the Eucharist when Mass is celebrated, still, if someone does not believe or is in a state of serious sin or mortal sin, they cannot receive the benefit of this sacrament. They can't receive the grace and union with God that is the effect of the sacrament. In fact, they should not receive the sacrament at all. And that's another thing that I think sometimes people forget nowadays. Um, you know, many people uh, go to the Eucharist, uh, they receive the Eucharist if when they do go to church um, without much thinking about it, but Never go, to, never go to the sacrament of confession. Um, they must be living saints, right? I hope so. Um, Aquinas says that to receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin or without faith in Christ is like lying to the sacrament. He compares it to the kiss of Judas. It's like a betrayal because Christ really is present. You might say this is personal. But for the same reason, for someone who does believe and is prepared by prayer and, and repentance to be open to the gift, the Eucharist pours into them not only Christ's true presence, but through that, that deeper communion with the whole Trinity dwelling in their soul, so that they're truly more united to God and more fully deified. And in that communion, they're more closely joined with the whole church as well, right? Sacrament of charity means that not only is it a uh, sacrament of, of love for God and God's love for us, but it also joins us to the whole body of Christ, um, including the angels uh, and saints in heaven. So Aquinas, um, drawing from the patristic tradition, emphasizes the way that in the Eucharist, we really touch and eat Christ himself. And he compares the Eucharist, I mentioned this yesterday, he compares the Eucharist to the burning coal that was seen by the prophet Isaiah in his vision of the temple. So it's Isaiah 6. In this vision, the prophet Isaiah sees an angel, one of the seraphim, fly down to, the, fly down to him holding a burning ember, a burning coal that he took with tongs from the, the altar of the temple. And the angel places it on Isaiah's lips, purify his lips so that he can speak God's words. So in the patristic tradition, this burning ember was associated with the Eucharist. So just as wood is united with fire in the burning coal, the bread of the Eucharist that we receive from the altar is united to the fire of Christ's divinity. So Aquinas uses this image um, as he explains that the body of the word made flesh in the Eucharist communicates grace and charity directly to us. Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is like, 
is like a burning coal. It's like a deifying fire that sets us on fire with charity as we receive it. So Aquinas quotes uh, John Damascene, who was a, a theologian uh, from uh, the 8th century. Damascene says this, and this is from his work, the De Fide Orthodoxa, um, on the Orthodox faith. Damascene says, the fire of that desire, which is in us, being taken up from this coal, that is, from the fiery enkindling of this sacrament, right, from the sacrament setting, setting us on fire, that desire will burn up our sins, illuminate our hearts, that by the participation of the divine fire, we may be kindled into fire and deified. So the Eucharist, because it truly contains not only the gift of grace, but the giver himself, is the sign or sacrament of Christ's charity and the sign and cause of ours. And in a special way, it prepares us for the resurrected life of heaven. Um, so Aquinas comments on, in his commentary on John, it's very beautiful if you ever um, have a chance to read it, um, his commentary on John 6. Aquinas explains that when Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, what he means is that the Eucharist is a food capable of making man divine and inebriating him with divinity. This is his word, inebri it's like it's making us drunk with God, um, drunk with divine life. So Jesus adds, and I will raise him up to eternal life, because in this sacrament, he's present not only in his divinity, but also in the reality of his flesh. And so he is the cause of the resurrection, not just of souls, but of our bodies as well, so that it is clear how profitable it is to eat this sacrament. That's from the commentary on John. Okay, um, I'm going to wind up here um, with a beautiful quote from Thomas's commentary on John 21 where Thomas compares the Eucharist to the lakeside breakfast that Christ cooks for his friends. And I couldn't believe it. Father John mentioned this same quote yesterday in his homily um, So uh, on the gospel for yesterday. So Christ prepares three things for the church's banquet, Thomas writes. And this quote's on the back of your handout. Christ carried the burning coals of charity from heaven to earth. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. I come to cast fire upon the earth. Likewise, he prepared the fish, laid over the burning coals, which is Christ himself. For the roasted fish is the suffering Christ. Now this sounds better in Latin because it rhymes. So I put the Latin in for you. Nampiscis asus Christus passus. The roasted fish is the suffering Christ who is laid out on the burning coals, when out of the fiery heat of his love for us, he was immolated on the cross. Christ loved us and handed himself over for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So be imitators of God as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. So the hot coals of Christ's own charity light the fire of his Holocaust on the cross. And as a result, Thomas says, we receive the bread which nourishes us, that is, himself. So Christ crucified offers himself to us as this burning coal glowing with charity, transformed into bread, baked in a kind of furnace of his own sacrificial love. And he gives himself to us 
um, as this gift from heaven to raise us up to heaven. So to eat Christ's body in the Eucharist makes us truly one with him. It deifies us and it prepares us in body and soul for the resurrection in glory, where God willing will fulfill our baptismal vocation to be the dwelling place of God. Thank you. Okay, time for a few questions. And we will have this quad libital tomorrow where you can stump the professor and ask anything you want. <laughs> yes? How is it that you know, for people who go to like daily Mass, you can receive the divinity of Christ every day, but then it doesn't really seem like we're getting any holier because we still uh, struggle with the same sin. <coughs> well... Say again? Repeat the question. Oh, sorry, yes. How is it that for people who go to daily Mass every day, and if they receive the body, blood, soul, and the divinity of Christ every day, um, why does it seem like they keep on struggling with their sins? Um, That's a great question. And, well, one way of of answering it is to say, well, if you didn't, it would probably be a lot worse, right? (laughs) Um, But I think think it's important to recognize that... uh, in this life, we're always going to struggle with sin, right? It's, it's, it's a part of, of living in a fallen world um, with a nature that, um, even though it's been healed by grace, and we still have what are called the remnants of sin in us, right? The foments of sin. And, and so we're, we're still tempted by things that uh, try and pull us away from God. Um, that's never going to be really taken away in this life. Um, and so we are going to struggle. Um, However, I think it's impossible. I think it's important to recognize that we can't always judge how holy we are by our feelings, right? We can't always tell by our feelings whether or not we're growing in, and being more deified. Um, our feelings don't always tell us the truth about those things, right? We can we can even get uh, over scrupulous and and over worried about little things that that actually aren't, you know as bad as we think they are, right? So, so it can seem that we're worse than we are to ourselves even sometimes. What can really tell us about how we're growing in holiness is more um, what we're doing, right? Are we living out of the theological virtues, right? Are we going to daily mass, which shows that we love God and, and that we're trying to grow further in, in his grace and be deified, right? It shows our goodwill towards God, our, our love for God. Are we doing? Uh, are we living in kindness with others? Right? Are we? Are we doing our best to overcome the sins that beset us, um, which God is permitting? Right? To um, sometimes He does allow us to struggle in order to to help us um, make us put more effort into it, if you like, and 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 grow even more. So I, I would say we can't always tell by our feelings whether or not we're growing and being more deified, but we we should look to our actions and see whether we're actually living out of the theological virtues, um, which are in, right, in our intellect and will. They are principles of action for us, and we need to exercise them. Um, and that could tell us more about whether we're, we're really growing closer to God. Yeah. Other questions for right now? Yes? I have more of a comment slash question okay. on the on the actual image yeah. at the very top above the the, the, the yes um, you have 
what appears to be the hand of God. Yes. And right above the hand, I'm like trying to like look at it closely, but it almost looks like there's a piece of fruit up at the top. Is that what that is? <laughs> that like, little round also, red like, thing? Yeah, there's also like, uh, looks like in the circle, there's like stalks of wheat of some sort. And I was just trying to think, like, I wonder if that also symbolizes the fruit of you know, the tree of good and evil as well. But this mm-hmm. reconciliation that Christ has now become that. That's, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I don't know what that little round thing is. Um, but I think that, I mean, that hand there is sort of, it, it symbolizes the power of the Father, really. It's, it's the hand of God kind of reaching down and giving power through, um, through Christ's humanity, giving power through Christ um, to the world. Um, so it doesn't seem to me that it would symbolize uh, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, but um, I don't know. You could <laughs> maybe it's something to uh, to to do some research on. I have never read anything that said anything about that little fruit thing up at the top. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> anything else? I answered all your questions. Yes. This is more of a like question slash comment. Okay, um, good. Bring it on. Um, so this weekend we prayed John twenty one like roughly three times and. It seems like St. Thomas Aquinas is making a connection between uh, the book of Tobit when Tobias, or oh, Raphael tells Tobias to offer the fish uh, for him and uh, Sarah, who's going to be his wife. Do you think there's like a prefiguration in Tobit, like a sort of uh, the idea that the fish is going to be offered up for like a relationship with them? Okay, sorry, say that again. Let me, so I want to repeat it for the. Okay, so in Tobit, uh, Raphael tells Tobias to offer a fish uh, and like burn it as like a sort of incense. Uh, do you think that's connected with John 21? Uh, okay, so the question is, um, uh, Raphael in the, in the Old Testament, right, tells um, Tobias, actually he, he gives him, as I recall, right, he gives him, he wants him to burn the fish gall and then um, doesn't he use that to, to smear on the eyes uh, to heal? Uh, the father from blindness. Am yeah, I getting that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, right. So I'm not sure that that's uh, like a sacrifice that's being offered to God. Um, um, exactly. It seems more like it's it's like a healing remedy that's being given to him as a kind of gift of God. Um, do you see what I mean? Yeah. So um, I'm not sure that uh, because it's not quite a sacrifice. I'm not sure that it really foreshadows um, Christ's sacrifice the way that some other Old Testament sacrifices certainly would do, right? I mean, Thomas thinks that all the all the sacrifices of the Old Testament do foreshadow Christ's sacrifice in some respect. Um, but that's an interesting connection. I mean, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Talk a lot about um, the Eucharist as a sacrament and Justification. I was wondering, um, so the liturgy, which you mentioned as the privileged way of deification, um, specifically praying the liturgy of the hours, how that could be involved in the process of Oh, great question. So how could the liturgy of the hours be involved in the process of deification? Um, well, um, certainly um, 
in the Liturgy of the Hours, right, we're praying the Word of God, right? And uh, Aquinas following Augustine would agree that, you know, really the speaker in all the Psalms is Christ himself, right? He, he is the Word. And in the Psalms, what we're, we're hearing really is him speaking um, in himself and in his, for his whole body. So that when we're um, sort of entering into the liturgy, the hours, we're being immersed in the word of God, right? We're being, we're being our minds are being joined to the word who is wisdom itself. And, um, and certainly in that way, we're being conformed to Christ, I would say. Um, and that uh, is, is uh, bringing us more into conformity with wisdom itself. And certainly, I would say that has a, a deifying effect, right? Um, so grace isn't conferred in the Liturgy of the Hours the way that it is in the sacraments, but certainly it's an occasion for um, growth in, uh, in love of God, um, in, in faith uh, in God, and, and so on, like all prayer is. And so that's contributing to our um, growth and perfection to the image of God. It's contributing to our deification. And to our, especially in our conformity to the word, I would say. Yeah. I personally love the Liturgy of the Hours. That was one of the things when I first came back to the church, was I was so drawn to hearing the friars singing the Liturgy of the Hours in the Dominican church in, in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and that just, you know, this idea that you, your whole day is, is immersed in the word of God. And that, you know, you, you never go far away from it morning, and then you come back to it mid-morning. So it's like, you know, you always kind of fall away a little bit, but then it brings you back. And so you're always kind of thinking of God in every moment of every day. And just the idea that one could do that for one's whole life, always be thinking of God, um, was something that I think attracts us all, you know, because that's what we want, right? We want to be deeply immersed um, in God all the time as much as possible. That's a foretaste of heaven. Yeah. I saw another hand. Oh, yes. So in your first lecture, you talked about how we image the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And um, this lecture, we talked a lot about how we uh, are conformed to Christ through the, through the Eucharist, through baptism. Um, do we as um, the sacraments will also conform, though, to the Holy Spirit and the Father as well, right? Mm -hmm. so I think especially through confirmation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do the sacraments conform us to the Holy Spirit and the Father as well as Christ? Is that your yes. your question? Um, yes, certainly they do. Right? I mean, all, what what grace does is it it um, it can it deifies us by conforming us to the whole of the Trinity. Right? Our our will becomes more like the Holy Spirit. Our intellect becomes more like the Son. Um, that's sort of what deification is, at least in according to Aquinas. And so when we receive the grace of the sacraments, we are made uh, more like the whole Trinity, um, absolutely. Um, and uh, when we're made more like the whole Trinity like that, um, we're conformed to, especially to Christ in his humanity, because he himself sort of is, is the perfect one, the, the one who's, who's full of grace. Um, and so sort of by the sacraments conforming us to Christ, they also conform us um, to the Trinity. You could say through us being conformed to Christ. Is that helpful? Yes. I hope so. Okay, yeah. Last question. Last question. Um, so 
I understand how all sacraments aren't sacraments and as to why they are and how through Christ's own words in the Bible and so, right. and so forth they've been stated. Mm-hmm. But I still wonder, particularly about the sacrament of marriage, right? How is that, like, obviously with the Eucharist explicitly we're being conformed to Christ, same with confirmation, baptism, confirmation is returning to that and so on and so forth. Holy orders, you're coming to Christ and becoming one in his line of priests. Like, it all makes sense. But how does the sacrament of marriage also bring us closer to the Trinity and closer to the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, certainly, I mean, like all other sacraments that can... Conf- oh, I'm sorry. Um, how does the sacrament of matrimony um, bring us closer to the Trinity and closer to, to Christ, to conformity to Christ? Okay. Um, well, it, um, matrimony confers grace, like all the sacraments do, of course. And so just um, in that gift of grace, right, that's deifying. Right? So we are deified by that gift of grace in the, in the sacrament. We're deified and, uh, with a certain end, though. Like, so each sacrament has a, what's called sacramental effect, a sort of sacramental grace that is kind of a special way in which grace has an effect in us. And so that grace of matrimony is specifically um, sort of given for um, growth in union with your spouse, right, um, to uh, reach the kingdom of heaven together, you might say. It's a grace that helps you live out all of the responsibilities and, and challenges and you know, needs of, of married life in a way that makes you holy and that brings you together to the, to the kingdom of heaven. So um, uh, you might say, in, in perhaps you could say, I don't say anything wrong here, but in matrimony, uh, it's, in a special way, you're being conformed to Christ together, <coughs> right? Um, you know, that idea of it takes three to get married, right? There's there's a way in which the closer you are to Christ, the closer you are to each other. Um, and, and so uh, you're kind of being conformed um, in, into Christ together. So, I mean, the, the, um, the scripture that is usually sort of mentioned in connection with this is Ephesians 5, right? That, that what marriage is, is it's a kind of sacrament that shows us the unity of Christ and his church. So in a special way, it images forth the way that Christ loves his church um, and sacrifices himself for her. Um, and that that's the kind of, the, the model for marriage, that that is the grace given in marriage is to live out that self-sacrificing love um, that Christ has for the church um, in, uh, through your unity with your spouse. And of course, also through the fruitful, fruitfulness of being open to children, which um, um, you know is also a part of Christ's union with the church, right? Is also um, meant to bring forth new children in the church, right? Through its sort of evangelizing and, and missionary activity. Um, does that help? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.